From our headquarters in New York City, this is Business of Home. I'm your host, Dennis Scully. Every week, I'll be talking to leaders and innovators from all corners of the home industry. I hope you'll join me. We'd like to thank our friends at Fuego for sponsoring this episode. In case you're unfamiliar or have been living under a coffee table, hey, we don't blame you. Fuego is the industry's most comprehensive project management software for design professionals. Meticulously developed alongside designers like you, Fuego is tailored to the way you work and built to foster your success. Learn more at Fuego.com. That's F-U-I-G-O.com. And now, on with the show. My guest this week is Nicole Gibbons, founder and CEO of the newly launched Claire. Hello. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for having us. We're actually coming to you from the Claire HQ in New York City. Yeah. So excited. Tell us briefly, before we get into the whole backstory, what is Claire? Yeah, Claire is an e-commerce paint company. We've created an easier and more inspiring way to buy paint for your home. We sell paint in 55 beautifully curated colors, all the tools that you need to paint with plus all the tips and inspiration you need to help you get started, and we deliver everything to your door. Excellent. And I want you to share with people who might not be familiar some of the, some of the story of sort of how you really got started. Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, I just want to say this is such a full circle moment for me to be here talking to you about Claire today um, because it's been a really long journey. So essentially, um, I started out from birth. I grew up with a decorator mom. So from okay. the moment I was born, I grew up around good design and, and really being passionate about design and all things home. And through my career, um, I ended up taking a different path early on. I went to Northwestern, came out of school, worked in PR and fashion, and I had a decade long career working in PR for a huge multi-billion dollar global retailer. Right. Um, Victoria's Secret. Victoria's right? Secret. Sure. Exactly. And while I was at Victoria's Secret, I started a design blog because I was just immersed in magazines. I subscribed to every magazine. This was in the early days of blogging right. before, um, before blogging was a business and there was a thing called influencers. Yes. You know, I think one of the early blogs, it was like apartment therapy and maybe like one or two others. And I was like, I'm going to start a blog, you know, and it, it started out just being a creative outlet. And I started immersing myself in the design community. And pretty much immediately, I knew that this is with the industry that I wanted to, to be in. I wasn't thrilled with fashion. It was a great starter job, like, okay. you know, fresh out of school. I'm like, this is fun. I'll do this while I figure out what I really want to do. Right. But immediately, um, once I started surrounding myself with um, people and um, just getting a, a deeper dive into what the design industry really looked like, um, I wanted to work in design and I at the same time that I started my blog I set up an LLC and started moonlighting I started taking on little side hustle design projects ah, okay. doing one room projects for friends and friends of friends and it kind of just grew from there and 2008 was definitely not a time to be quitting your day job right so as passionate as I was about what I was doing on the side it was not a comfortable time to leave to step out on my own and so I spent several, probably more years than I had planned to doing things on the side and really just building my name. You okay. know, I worked in PR, so I was able to, to, to figure out how to get some recognition for what I was doing on the blog and, and try to build myself into an expert and a personality. Right. Um, and then by the time I left that job, 
club, um, I had built up enough of a persona and enough confidence to go out and do my own thing. I wasn't um, interested in working for someone else. Okay. Um, I knew that I wanted to build my own business. And, and ultimately, my goal was never to just build a design firm and, and be in someone's living room, helping them pick out their curtains for the rest <laughs> of my life. Right. My goal was really um, to build a brand. And I was always highly inspired by the Martha Stewart business model. I loved that she took her brand to Kmart. I thought that was really brilliant. Um, okay. One of the things that I noticed when I started chatting with folks in the design world is that you know everyone aspired to, to, to have a really high-end brand. Right. Line at Barney's, licensing deal with fill-in-the-blank fabric showroom. Okay. Uh, you know, and for me, I saw the opportunity to reach the masses as, as being more appealing um, and just being able to touch more people and more homes with my design aesthetic through a, a sort of a larger distribution channel was always really exciting. And the other thing that was important to me was to build uh, myself into a TV personality. I wanted to do television and, again, be able to speak to a wider audience about right. design um, and really help people. And so shortly after leaving my corporate America day job. Okay, so let's pause there for a second. So your so your corporate America day job was you you were working in public relations at Victoria's Secret, yeah, right? Yeah. So so tell me the kinds of things that you were doing at your job at Victoria's Secret. Yeah, just so, so we get I, a sense of. Yeah, so yeah. I was global director of PR and right. events at Victoria's Secret. So, right, so you had a big job. I had a big role. I oversaw um, our beauty category. I oversaw our direct channel, which was everything at the time when they had the catalog, everything right. that came from the catalog and e-commerce side of the business. Um, and then I helped kind of pinch hit Auburn Bra launches when the team needed help. I would own, own a launch and, and work yeah. on that. And this was um, this was in Victoria's Secret's heyday. This was when Victoria's Secret was, in the heyday, right? Really yeah. strong brand, yeah. fashion shows all the time. I mean, when I started out, it was Heidi, Tyra, Giselle, Adriana Lima, like all of the supermodels. And, you know, fresh out of college, I'm like riding on private planes with Tyra Banks. <laughs> <laughs> and Heidi Klum and like doing all of these fabulous things and red carpets and runway shows and yeah, you know it was a pretty heady, heady experience. <laughs> it was a fun yeah. it was a fun time. I worked on a lot of really exciting projects. Sort of towards the end of my tenure, the company started expanding globally and so I oversaw all of our international store openings and um, and PR and, mm, and that okay. was really fun. But yeah. you know, underneath it all I really had this desire though to to be working in design. So okay. I worked and, and was that was that mom that was giving you that desire? Or was no, that, it was like, just. What was the connection you felt to the interior design world that that made you yearn to go and pursue that? You know, I just loved home. I loved okay. decor. I loved beautiful things, and just I grew up with a grandmother who had an impeccable home. Like you know, she had chinoiserie everything, and like <laughs> I grew up around okay. that. You know, but right. you know, the most awesome wallpaper. We had grass cloth all over our house. Our playroom. I posted a picture a long time ago on Instagram, and you can probably still dig for it, but. The playroom in my house when I was little, we had pink grass cloth and pink carpet. Oh it goodness. was like the most fabulous, house, you know. So it's like I just always and you appreciated. grew up in, in Michigan. I grew yes? up in Michigan in suburban okay. Detroit, and um, I just always appreciated good design. And I remember okay. like one of my first internships in college. I worked at an ad agency, and they had this um, recycle room. So all the everyone at the ad agency was on comp lists for every magazine you could think of, right. and they would all end up in this room to be recycled. And so at the end of workday, I would go in and pull out all the design magazines, and I'd literally take a backpack and take, you know, 15 pounds of magazines back home and, and just take like them home. pour through and like, you know, huh. ripping out tears and 
just saving the inspiration and I just loved design okay. and you know when I started um, the blog and I started my LLC I wanted to talk to as many people as I could in the design world about um, how to get started how to build a business right. what do I need to do what do I need to learn so and is that a lot of what the blog was so oat right at and the it, time yeah it was yes. called so oat and yes. it was like you and know it, and it was so oat and so <laughs> what so what what did you want to say in the beginning on the blog what well, was the what it, was the voice it was literally just a creative outlet I just okay. wanted to gush about all the things I loved um, and it so you were was, sharing things you've seen and, and that yeah, you were super excited about it was really just that it okay. was nothing that strategic or right. thought out it was just none of my friends cared about design so I didn't have anyone else to talk to about <laughs> okay. you know all the in things I loved in your lonely room you were sharing yeah. it out with the rest of the world so I got to share it with people who right. actually cared and wanted yes. to engage and talk about the same things and who were design nerds just like me and and, um, and that was really fun well and, and and you actually did get quite an impressive following in, in, in time I mean so how long did it take for you to be working the blog before you started to really get traction and see that people were really reading your thing? Well, I mean, I kind of saw traction immediately because, you know, I was a publicist and I knew right. how to get the word out. Okay. So I did like a mass emailing. And this was the days of when people had blog rolls. Do you remember that? Sure. So like I had everybody on my blog roll. Right. And then, you know, <laughs> everybody who was on my blog roll, I reached out to and, and was like, Hey, I've been a big fan of your blog forever. Right. Check out mine. Yep. You know, I included a few press people on it. And like right away, I had a couple of other bloggers that wrote about my site um, who were big at the time, like Cup of Joe, who's like huge now, oh, yeah. had like, you huh. know, you know, mentioned me and a few other big bloggers had mentioned me. And then um, I'm totally blanking on the reporter's name, but she wrote a column in the Washington Post on home. And she had a column called Blog Watch. And she would highlight what certain bloggers were talking about on their blogs and so and she gave you a shout and out. so I got written up in the Washington Post and like wow that's big you know and that okay. was like within like two months of launching the blog and I think like you know I never ran my blog like a business right. because I always had a day job but I guess you could say I was one of the early influencers in the mm -hmm. design space because pretty you know I, I was started getting connected with all the brands and right. you know people I was a go-to when people wanted to share their stories their products their launches invite me to things Right. Um, and so the blog ended up being a really important channel for me to just explore my love for design and learn the industry and meet people and and as you just said, you go to a lot of events and right yeah. and, and start to meet a lot of people. And and when did you finally decide? Okay, I'm going to make the the leap from Victoria's Secret. So I knew that I would make the leap eventually. And so January 2013, beginning of the year, okay. is when I finally met, took the leap and and left. And um and you know, like I said, I had I had a plan. I, I didn't just uh, leave and be like, all right, what am I going to do now? I talked to a million people about what to do, how to prepare. My my pals Tilton Fenwick was like, oh. they were like, be prepared to not make any money They're for great. two years. You know, and yeah. so I. Like, That's what they told you. Be prepared to not make any money. <laughs> you know, it's years. hard to build up a client base. Yeah. It's hard to build your name. And so I made sure that by the time I was ready to, to launch my business, I had a really nice cushion so mm -hmm. I didn't have to worry about um, if I didn't get clients or okay, so if things didn't pan out, nice. pan out. You know, I had um, really early on, like in the 2008 days, I sat down with everybody who would take a meeting with me. So people like, um, you know, one of the first people I reached out to was Susan Vesher, who was like a long time oh, publicist sure. in the design world. And she made so many intros. Really? She introduced nice. me to like Alexa Hampton, who talked to me on the phone, um, Matthew Patrick Smythe, um, you know, just a bunch of just amazing designers who built incredible businesses. And yeah. so over the years from like day one of starting the blog to like leaving to build my own business, 
I had so many insights from people who not only have done it, but had done it well and done it at right. a really high level. Yeah. Um, and you know, every panel discussion at the D&D building, every, this was before the days where you could just listen to a podcast. Right. So I right. just- You actually <laughs> physically had to go to hear yeah. panel discussions. Yeah, so yes. I would go to like every panel and you know, just after every panel, I'd go up to the designers I admired and ask them questions and, I just learned so much over those years, and so by the Good time. Good for you. So where, so where did that confidence come from? We were talking about this earlier, you and I. Where did the confidence come from to just sort of doggedly pursue this this passion of yours? I honestly don't know. I think it's just innate. Okay. Um, I it's part have, of your DNA. It's part just, of my DNA. I've okay. always been really ambitious. I've always been really driven. Yeah. I'm one of those people that nothing I ever do, no matter how high of an achievement it is, is never good enough for me. So I'm almost like. A and this have this inner drive I'm competing with my own self to like beat my own accomplishments right. and I'm also the kind of person that doesn't do anything hastily anytime I make a big decision it's very thoughtful um, I contemplate I research and you know I get to the point where I have full confidence in whatever it is I want to go out for um, I think it's so interesting that 2008 you knew you wanted to make a change and it wasn't until 2013 yeah. that you really felt ready that, yeah. that that's very impressive most people wouldn't have the pain or, or frankly, the good sense to, to wait that that long and, and really plan it out as it as it sounds like yeah. you, you did. Yeah, well, part of that was forced out of necessity because 2008, 2009 sure. was, you know, the no one The financial crisis changed <laughs> everyone's plans. Yeah, no yeah. one was really trying to, not right. a good time to, to start yeah. a business. But, um, you know, so it took some time to kind of like get, get over that hump and feel like there's actually a market for my services and yes. everything I'm trying to do. Um, but also, you know, just saving up the money and feeling ready and all of that. Yeah. Well, time. that's the other thing that you had the discipline to to save some money and 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 you recognized that you were going to need some time to to live off your savings to to get a business off the ground. Yeah. So okay, so you you launched the design business 2013. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And uh, and so then so then what happens? Yeah. So my goal um, when I decided to take my business full time was to focus first on trying to do TV because I felt like that's a harder nut to crack than getting clients. Okay. I felt like I was connected enough that I'd probably get a few clients, um, you know, if I hustled hard enough. Okay. But breaking into that world required a lot more um, uh, connections that I didn't quite have and a lot more um, work, um, you know, building a reel and all of that stuff just right. takes time. So I actually left VS and focused a lot of my energy on thinking through um, and, and really trying to nail on-camera opportunities and just um, try to create a brand that was larger than just my design firm. Okay. Um, and so shortly after leaving VS, um, through a contact that I knew in the fashion world who was working for um, a Condé Nast title at the time, who was just starting to dip their toe in the water of doing video, because um, even in the days of you know 2013, not everybody was doing video sure. like they are now. And so yeah. they were working with this production company who was like, hey, we're doing this um, web series for Pier One, and asked her for a recommendation on who might be good on camera. And at the time, I had a little bit of a reel. I had done some on-camera work while I was at VS. I hosted a um, panel at the Pierre Frey showroom with like Nate Berkus, oh, okay, Stephen right. Gambrell, and Laura Carrar. Sure. And I, I filmed my own little like sort of host 
segment about the panel right where I interviewed everybody and I had done a um, collaboration with Target also with Nate Berkus when he launched his collection right um, I remember that I did a video project with Target and I was sort of like the first person to use his products in my home um, and that was a video that was promoted through all of Target's channels um, I had done um, I believe it was for editor at large at the Maison Deluxe show house yes at Greystone Mansion <laughs> where I hosted a segment where I interviewed like Catherine Ireland and you know so I'd done I had a little bit of a reel it was like a hodgepodge not so polished reel but I've I had done some on camera work and so I sent them my reel and I got booked to do this web series for Pier One it was a you know a multi-day shoot four videos about decorating with color Um, (laughs) perfect how ironic that that was my first uh, you know big on camera gig and um, you know and then from there that web series ran on um, Pier One's digital channels, but it also ran as interstitials on TLC. Oh, okay. Um, and so to be able to go out to rep, I was looking for representation. So right. to be able to say, I just shot this web series, it's running on TLC for this big brand. People took me seriously. Sure. Um, and I went out to LA, did a bunch of meetings with talent managers and agents and trying to see what might be the right fit or what's the right route I should even be taking to try to try to do television and um, through those meetings I met someone who didn't end up becoming my agent but um, the day after we met she emailed me and said um, there's this opportunity for a show on own I think you'd be great for it would you be interested on auditioning in auditioning um, and so there was a show on OWN called Homemade Simple. It was a DIY decorating show that was sponsored by Procter & Gamble. So the, the show is basically like a big integration for P&G products. Right. Okay. Um, huh. and, and we should say that for people that might not know, that's the Oprah Winfrey Network. When, when Nicole refers to OWN, that's, yes. that's what that is. Yes. yes. So I forgot just, to leave out just, that part. Just for people who the might Oprah not Winfrey know. Oprah Winfrey Network. Just to work Oprah's name <laughs> in there. Yes. You know, Oprah used to yeah. be my boss. Just saying. (laughs) But um, yeah, so I auditioned for that show and I got it. Um, And um, so the first season, it was a show where there were four designers and each show a different designer owned an episode. Um, And so that first season, I think I did three or four episodes. Right. Um, And then I did similar, like, you know, three, four, five episodes, the two more seasons. So I was on the show for three seasons. Um, And we'd go into homes, the show filmed in L.A., and we would do one-room budget-friendly makeovers um, for deserving families. So um, that was a great experience. And along... That is a great experience. Is that that a moneymaker for you? Did that that help to sort of pay a lot of bills? Or was that much more about you getting exposure? Yeah, to be honest, it was more... TV opportunities are more about the exposure okay. and um, getting your name out there and I think it was a really great way to, to get my name out there sure. and to also just build my real build my on-camera experience right. to be on set for 12 hours a day for all those days straight um, filming a television show is like the best kind of you know experience you can get absolutely incredible Um, training just sort of thrown into the wolves yeah Yeah, it's different than just hosting a segment or whatever it's just a whole different level of performance and all of that yeah yeah. so it was great experience so I did that show for three seasons and um, while I was doing that show though in between I'd be in New York working on projects working on clients you know working with clients Um, and then I also started doing a lot of work with brands so similar to what I did with Pier One I would do video projects for brands or collaborations with brands where I would talk about their products on my blog and so 
I kind of had this multifaceted business, which was also something that was really important to me. One of the things that I heard when I talked to all the designers who gave me advice during the 2008-2009 days was, it's a tough business. You know, you need to have multiple revenue streams because we're all suffering uh, because of the recession. So all of the designers who were solely focused on getting clients really had a hard time keeping their businesses afloat because that was their sole revenue stream. So for me, um, to be able to work with brands, work um, on television, you know, do all of these different things, I created a really good business. Yeah. Um, you know, it, the, the challenge, though, was that I felt like I had 17 jobs. Well, I was going to say, <laughs> and you was, were really being pulled in a lot of different it, I, directions. Yeah, yeah, and it was a hustle. And, sure. you know, my operation was always very small. Most of the time, it was always just myself and one assistant. Right. And I was doing a lot of projects. Um, and I was owning as much as I could on a project. So if I got booked for a video shoot, I wasn't just being the talent. I'd be like, I can do the set design. And I'd assemble a team oh my goodness, and not so just really, host, but okay. I'd be like building the set. So I'd be be there, you know, just kind of doing it all. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, it was awesome. It was fun, but it was a hustle. Um, and so fast forward to 2016, or actually before that. No, so let me backtrack. So okay. I wanted to build this brand. I talked about how I love the Martha Stewart model. Right. But what I realized was that, you know, for, for a designer, the traditional way of doing things is you license your name, mm. right? Right. You get licensing deals and you build a brand that way. And one of the things I realized in researching and kind of understanding how those deals are structured and I felt like the licensing landscape or that way of doing things has just changed tremendously no it's hard for people to build a brand like Martha did um, no matter how big your business is or how notable you are and you know when you looked at just how lucrative the deals were it just wasn't what the direction I wanted to go mm -hmm. I realized that I think that I wanted more ownership in what I was building okay um, and so I was far more inspired by like these young people starting these really innovative companies like the Warby Parkers of the world and the Caspers of the world okay and another sort of secret that I never really talked about is I've always been interested in technology and the startup space so I followed uh -huh. like since the days of Napster like when I was in high school you know I think right. I was freshman college or really young senior year in high school freshman college Napster came out and you were pirating a lot of music I was you? pirating lots of music okay. and I was like the kid who started Napster I'm like he's like basically my age I could do something like this one day like just that idea was inspiring so and you were keeping that secret so you weren't letting people know that that was an interest of yours yeah I mean I, no, no one really cared but like I was reading all the blogs I, I read TechCrunch every day and Mashable every day I was reading TechCrunch back when the founder Michael Arrington was still writing sure, the post right. you know and so like yeah. I followed what was happening in the VC space I followed startups and I saw how the consumer landscape was shifting you know I worked at a big retailer so I understood the retail landscape and um, how e-commerce was um, changing mm -hmm. the way people buy things and also throughout my experiences in home one of the things that I recognized is that the home industry can be kind of sleepy right like I've gone to high point I see how it all happens behind <laughs> Whoa, the scenes. Now wait a minute. I know I love High Point, but I'm just saying, like, there hasn't been as much innovation in home as there has been in other categories. Sure. And so, so the, you saw an opportunity. So I saw an opportunity to do something more innovative in the into, home space. Yeah. And one of the brands that I truly admired was One Kings Lane. I think they built a fantastic uh, brand. Yes. Um, they did something that felt really fresh mm -hmm. in an industry that wasn't really innovating as fast as, as I believe the the consumer landscape was shifting and so um and what do you think they did so well because one king's lane created an incredible brand yeah and, yeah and they were they were 
creating tremendous content and they they really they, they were so successful for a period and then yeah. and then of course got a little perhaps overextended with we're not sure yeah i mean i don't know what was happening on the business side of things yeah. but I, and 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 i know they had a, a sort of a rocky um, road on that front but from a branding perspective and a consumer facing perspective they did a lot of things right they invested in content they really built a connection with their audience. They were inspiring. Yes. Um, it felt fresh and different. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they were trying all of these different things. You know, they launched Hunter's Alley, which was like their vintage marketplace. Right. And they were doing these like tastemaker tag sales. And they were testing and trying all these different things and trying and failing. And that's what you do. That's how you find your Absolutely. product market fit, right? Yes. Versus just doing the same thing and being afraid to take risks. So I watched how they tried all these different things. They created this really fresh brand. Their aesthetic really re- resonated with me. I connected with everything they put out. Um, and just understanding, you know, as a person who came from a blogging background too, like content is king. And I don't think at the time they launched, no other home brand, even the mass market retailers that had all of the resources, none of them were really creating content in the same way One Kings Lane did. Yeah. And I think that's no, what no, no. They, they were extraordinary they what, they, really well. what they created. They had, and they had a brilliant team, Ilana Frankel and others. Yeah, you yeah. Know, yeah. Amazing people that they had working. Yeah. So, so, I, so that really inspired you. So, so that you. really inspired me. I saw how, you know, they raised venture capital to build their business. And, you know, and I saw the, all the Warby Parkers and the Caspers and the Birch Boxes and these people who are creating innovative new ways to buy things, <laughs> right? And, right? And particularly in unsexy product categories like glasses and mattresses and luggage. And, you yes. know, um, and I thought about what could I do in home? I was constantly thinking about what I could do in the home space that was really different and disruptive. And so I'd be thinking about ideas all day long, left and right. Um, But none of them really stuck, right? I might do a little research and be like, yeah, no, that's not big enough, or that's not interesting enough, or I don't see that really cutting through. Um, And then in 2016, I had a light bulb moment around paint. Okay. Um, I have sourced and specified lots of paint in my career. Sure. Um, I've worked with every person in the paint purchasing customer chain from the average homeowner to architects to interior designers being one to contractors to professional painting companies that were high end to like the mom and pop paint companies that are just like some dudes who show up (laughs) with you know their nephew and like some tools right right so like I, I saw all the pain points and as someone who was really active in the media I'd be doing interviews with publications and whatever the topic was about they would always have a sidebar we're working on a story about the best paint colors for our readers what's your favorite sure. white what's your favorite gray you know people were constantly um, asking me for help because right. the process of buying paint was so daunting and I and I noticed that both from a consumer side just everyday people my friends my family you know obviously my clients didn't have a hard time because they had an expert picking paint colors for them and that's what I realized yeah. is like when people have the design guidance they didn't actually have such a painful experience but when they were left on their own to figure it all out shopping for paint was really difficult um, and and just the fact that even down to the biggest media publications are you know devote pages in their magazines to trying to edit the overwhelming selection of colors down for the readers I saw that and I, I thought about it and I thought that that would be the perfect opportunity and as a designer I really love color you know I love using color in fresh ways in my work so color is something that really resonated with me mm-hmm. 
it's the most sort of cliche line, but it, it's the easiest and least expensive way to transform the look of your home. Is, is um, change the color. Is to change yeah. the color, change your, to repaint. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you I, when you look at some of the other product categories in home, maybe it's like a lower purchase frequency, or even if you buy furniture and you move, you'll take your furniture with you. You're not going to buy all new furniture when you move, but you will repaint. And I know that people consume a lot of paint. People buy it in high volumes. I knew that paint companies had ridiculous market caps and were really solid businesses Mm -hmm. and once I started diving deeper into the market dynamics I really felt like this was an industry that made sense to try and tackle um, and that I had the perfect combination of skills and experiences to be the one to take advantage of the opportunity from my retail background to my work as a designer and a design expert and channeling all that through this brand so in 2016 though was a crazy year for my business i was doing so many projects it was like a kick-ass year and can we curse on sure (laughs) go ahead sorry (laughs) and so i really didn't have time to build the idea i just thought about it so i thought about so paint was just always on your mind paint was on my mind this business was on my mind every time someone was like oh my god nicole help me pick a paint color i'm like i really need to do this business so i thought about it for a year okay and i thought about how i would build it how i would go about it what i needed to do and the year kind of went on and then you know what happens on new year's day new year's eve New dawn, sure. New year. Those resolutions. This is what I'm going to focus on in yep. the coming year. You start thinking about what am I doing with my life this year? Yeah. And so I reflected back on 2016, which was a good year, but I was doing a lot of different things. Okay. I wasn't doing exactly what really moved me. Okay. Um, in my business, I really enjoyed designing, but I wasn't getting the kind of clients that I you know, really felt like I needed to do the kind of work that I really wanted to showcase. Okay. Um, I was, like I said, I had 17 jobs. I was over here working with this brand, over here <laughs> filming this TV show. I'm on this yeah. morning show. Like, right. I, was, I felt like my You were making a lot of life, appearances. Yeah, yeah it yeah. was just a constant hustle and scramble. Right. And I really wanted to focus on doing one thing really well, and I really felt like there's no better time than now than to pursue this opportunity because, you know, I'm at a place in my life where I don't have any real obligations, no kids, nothing like that. Perfect time. Um, And so I decided to focus on um, building out this idea. And so I spent January researching the market. Um, The top of February, I started having conversations with folks in the industry, but also um, I had one conversation with a VC. Okay. And those couple early conversations gave me all the confidence I needed to say, okay, I'm comfortable not working for a while to see what, what can materialize if I really focus on this. So when you, when you first met with a, with a venture capitalist, what, what was it you described that you were working on? That you, what was your idea as you articulated it? At yeah, the time? so it was literally just an idea at that point. Right. And um, I was a, I'm a member of this all-women's co-working space called The Wing. The Wing, which I so wish I could belong to. I know. But as you say, no all boys women. alive. Yes. Sorry. That's my pain point right there. Yeah, but um, I, I love the wing. And so at the time, they would do these office hours. So you could sign up for 20 minutes with someone and be like, you want to start a beauty brand? Meet with the founder of so-and-so. And they advertise this one, have an idea, working on a business, want to raise capital, sign up for 20 minutes with, with this VC, this woman, Susan right. Lyon. And, um, who we should point out, Susan Lyon, who used to run Martha Stewart yeah. uh, among many yeah. other companies yeah. that she has, has run. And honestly, at the time, I didn't realize how deep 
she understood the home industry, right? right. I just was like, I'm signing up with this VC who has this amazing media background yes. and, you know, champions female founders, right? That was kind of as much as I knew. Right. And so I signed up. I got 20 minutes with her. I had a one-page slide and my idea. And I said, like, you know, here's this idea I have. I um, have decided to pursue this business. This is where I think it could go. This is the vision that I have for building this brand. And I know I need to raise capital to do it because I can't bootstrap this. Men, right. you know, it's, it's a very capital intensive endeavor. And she gave me some really solid advice. And not only did she give me advice, she said, when you are ready, I'd love to meet with you again. And, you know, obviously she didn't end up investing, but mm -hmm. just her early interest and confidence. I'm like, okay, if she thinks this is an interesting right. enough business idea, I know that I can convince other investors to to invest in this company. And so um, one of the things that I knew was that it would be really hard to raise money off of an idea. Right. Without a product. Um, without a product. Yeah. But I know that in the world of consumer goods, your supply chain is everything. And so I focused the rest of my time. So that was like first week in February where I started having those conversations. And okay. I said, okay, before I talk to investors, I need to really build out a foundation for my business. So I spent my time learning the market and uh, meeting with suppliers and really building out our supply chain architecture. Okay. And um, making sure that there was a foundation in place that we had, I had costs. I knew exactly what it was gonna cost. You, you can't raise capital without a solid financial model sure. and, and real smart assumptions about what's gonna happen. And so, you know, by the time I actually went to raise capital, not only did I have all of the suppliers for every physical product that we sell today, I had um, a solid business model around unit economics and, and, and how the business would work, but also a really strong idea for how I would market this brand and how we would really differentiate ourselves from a brand and marketing perspective. So how did you go about learning supply chain for a paint company? I mean, how did you even figure that out? Yeah, I mean, well, I do have the background of having worked for a big retailer. So right. I understand like just all the basic functions of how an organization like this should run. Mm -hmm. And I think I... I don't know, innately understood <laughs> what I needed to do to learn, okay. right? So I went to trade shows. I talked to people. I, like, you know, just talked to as many people as I right. could. Right, you took as many meetings as you took could Took as many people. meetings, cold calls, and, like and everything so you were you, of. were you meeting with, with chemical companies or paint companies? I was meeting I mean, with chemical companies, paint companies, okay. raw material suppliers, like every person in the chain that you can think of right. to learn and to figure out how I want to go about doing things. Yeah. And, and what what was their reaction when you were talking about did you did you sort of share your your idea or were you nervous about kind of putting your idea out there? Yeah, for you know, I wasn't really talking to competitive companies. Right. So I wasn't concerned about someone's going to steal my idea yeah. or anything like that. But, um, you know, I, I shared as much as I needed to with the right people okay. who needed to know. And, and what was their response? And, you know, one of the first conversations I had around the same time that I met with um, Susan Line was with um, someone who works in the R&D space for one of the biggest raw material suppliers in, in uh, for the paint industry. Oh, okay. So big chemical company. And um, the person that I talked to there um, said to me, I know every single ingredient in a can of paint, and even I hate shopping for paint, so I <laughs> okay. think you're onto something. <laughs> You've got a good idea. <laughs> and that was a really strong vote of confidence. Here's someone who works in the R&D space, right. um, 
who you know has a ton of experience working with all the major players mm -hmm. and who feels like there's a need for some disruption in the industry and okay. a better way of doing things and so the incumbents who dominate the paint market mm -hmm. are one to two hundred year old companies who have never changed the way they distribute create or market their products and this is 2018 right, right. the consumer landscape has shifted and people are increasingly comfortable buying things online yet paint is one of the things that you really can't buy online there's no easy way to buy it you've got to go to a big box retailer right you've got to stare up at a wall of six thousand colors mm -hmm. literally because a typical brand has an average of three thousand colors you've got to try to narrow those down to the one color you're looking for there's no one to help you you know maybe a dude in a vest who might tell you a little bit about <laughs> the paint but they're not going to help you pick the perfect color for your right. bedroom right then sampling most people want to test a color before they buy it. To sample colors the old way, you've got to go to the store. So most people take a trip to the store just to get free paint chips. They take those home. They narrow them down because sampling is an investment. Right. So they narrow them down to three or five colors they want to test. They go back to the store. They buy the little sample pots. They buy cheap tools. They go back home. They paint swatches mm -hmm. onto their wall, wait for them to dry, stare at them for two weeks, get confused, <laughs> and thus begins this whole back and Terrible forth. Terrible process. Convoluted Horrible. process. It's a miserable customer journey. It doesn't need to be so complicated right the secret that most people don't know when designers aren't choosing from thousands of colors we curate our favorites you sure you've got a very edited yeah of what you you have. ask any designer what their favorite colors are and they have a short list of go-to favorites that they've tried and tested and love and can tell you what they look like under any light source yeah and it, this looks great in this room this direction you know like we have it edited down already that's right. why magazines are always asking designers for their paint color recommendations <laughs> so right. why hasn't a paint company taken this designer-led approach to not just color curation, but the whole experience, right? I've made it my life's work to help people make their homes beautiful. I know all the pain points of home improvement. I know how challenging it is for people, both when they're hiring professionals and working with the fanciest contractors to what it's like when they're doing it themselves. And I just saw a way to simplify the whole process, take a really cumbersome customer journey, a product category that's unsexy, a, a product that's difficult to shop for and just make it easy and design a business, design a paint company that was made for the way people are actually shopping today. And so that's that's why I created Claire and here we are. That's Claire. We're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsor, but we'll be right back. To stand out in this crowded industry, you need more than a love of design. You need strategy, sales, marketing, and other things they don't teach you in design school. This episode is brought to you by Fuego, whose mission is to empower the design trade. Fuego believes that business and art can and must coexist, and they've built a platform to make that happen. Learn more at Fuego.com. And now, back to the show. Okay, so you went to all these trade shows, you're talking to all these people, you've got this great idea, it is, it is ready to go, but... Now you've got to go out and, and, and raise money for it, right? Yeah. So now you've got to take, so you, you had an early meeting with, with Susan Line and she was very encouraging, but now you've got to go and meet with would-be investors. Yeah. So when did that first start to happen? By the time summer rolled around, a few people knew what I was working on. And so okay. they'd be like, you need to meet with this person. You need to meet with that person. Right. I wasn't ready to fundraise. I wasn't, I didn't have my deck done. I wasn't. Okay. So you were still working on I wasn't confident in my together. financial model just yet. Okay. But I took a few early meetings, also got, you know, a lot of encouraging feedback. Right. Um, had like a, you know, had, had a 
first draft of the deck that I felt good enough sharing with a few people. Okay. Um, I, I spent a ton of time preparing the financial model. You know, business finance was not a I was going to say you needed to bring in some help for that, I'm sure. Yeah, I had to, just this analyst that I met helped me really think through the model and okay. think through, you know, just I really needed to understand what all the key drivers are would be of the business and um, make sure I felt confident in that before I went out and talked to investors, mm -hmm. right? Like, you know, if they were going to grill me on, you know, what your, you know, all the different metrics and whatever, sure. I needed to, to know it inside and out. So by the time I went to raise capital, I knew the business inside and out. I knew the numbers. I, um, I had a really thoughtful plan for how I would execute. And even though, you know, when you do a model, obviously, like we had a really good read on all the cost of goods, all the all the operating expenses. Sure. But in terms of revenue, right. those were all assumptions, right? Because we yeah. didn't have actual customers yet. But I made really smart, thoughtful assumptions. And I think when you're raising money at this early stage, that's all investors want to know. They want to know that you have a plan and that you've made really smart assumptions around the business. It doesn't matter if your assumptions are right or wrong because it's all a learning, right? You're not going to really know until you have actual customers. Right. So the best thing that you can do is just make ed educated guesses around those assumptions. But I think I was super prepared. And I really started fundraising in earnest in the fall. Um, in the fall I, of 17. Like, like uh, sorry, um, September. I really okay. wanted to start in August, but right. everybody in the world was on vacation. Everybody was still away. So it was sure. hard to get meetings and stuff. So yeah. I might have had like one or two meetings in August, but okay. um, I didn't really start kicking it off until September. In September, I was doing like, you know, five, ten meetings a week. Oh, really? Yeah. So five or ten meetings a yeah. week. Yeah. I went from having like two or three in the month to like you know, hitting the road on a right. road show, pitching and, and so, so how would the meetings go? I mean, what, what was that like? Um, you know, I'd never been in that environment where I'm pitching a VC asking for money. Right. But um, I spent my whole life pitching things as a, as a PR person. Sure. So I really understood the art of storytelling. I really um, understood, um, you know, just how to sell something. And also I had the confidence. I lacked no confidence in what I was doing. And so I think that also helped a ton when I was sitting in the room. Right. No one wants to invest in someone who isn't quite sure about their own idea sure. or doesn't quite know what they want. Um, so I went into those rooms super prepared, fully confident in the vision, but also fully confident in just how, how I would execute. Um, and, you know, the statistics say that like most people who you pitch are going to say no, right? Like you're not going to get 100% of the investors right. on board. But what I realized, so early on, you know, I talked to a bunch of other people who raise capital, and typically if a VC is not interested, they're gonna say no right away because they don't wanna waste their time or yours. Mm -hmm. So no one was really telling me to beat it, you know? Okay. I'd, I'd, I'd pitch or I'd get these intros on email or whatever, and everybody was really interested to hear about the business. So they wanted to see the presentation and hear from you. Yeah, I think I think number one, my background probably helped a ton. Right. Um, just the the fact that I come from a decade long retail experience and am an interior designer and have this sort of media persona, I think was really compelling. But also, it was a market that they were sleeping on. Right. Like VCs are smart. They they they're in the know. They want to know about every hot deal and every hot market. Right. And when I went in to talk about paint they're like I had no idea the paint market was this huge never thought about it but holy shit it paint is everywhere <laughs> you know right. and so um sorry see now that we <laughs> might have to come on I'm sorry do you no, want me no. to start that question over oh, <laughs> no sorry. no we're totally kidding that's how I roll uh, um yeah so so they they discovered how big the market was and how big the potential was and they were so excited, right? I mean, yeah. So when I um, when I first started talking with investors, they they were um, 
just sort of shocked at how big the paint market yeah. was. And so I think that helped make the, the pitch really compelling. And when I would have these meetings, um, I would get called back or I would get further inquiries, right? Okay. When an investor wants to dive deeper right. into your business or they want to take a look at the model, you know there's interest. Mm-hmm. So even the ones who ended up passing, off the bat, so many investors wanted to dig a little deeper. And that was also really encouraging. And like, you know, while most of the people I pitched didn't end up investing, every pitch, every meeting that I took, even if it didn't materialize, I learned something from the questions that they answered. Mm -hmm. I knew how to like nail it better the next time. Or, you know, maybe there was something I hadn't thought of. So with every meeting, I feel like my pitch got stronger and stronger. And then by the time, um, you know, I got in the room with the right folks, I ended up with like the most amazing investors anyone could ask for for an early stage company. Well, I was going to say, and please feel free to name drop. I mean, you had some very impressive investors come on early on. Yeah. Yeah. So So, um, tell us about that. Yeah. So first round capital is our biggest investor. They are as A-list as it gets in early stage investing. They were early investors in Uber. Mint.com, Warby Parker, Birchbox, you know, just some of the best companies across all sectors that you could ever imagine. Uh, You know, I come from a fashion background. And so Imaginary Ventures, which is a new fund that was founded by Natalie Massonet, who founded Net-A-Porte, invested. And that was so exciting for me because I really admired the business that Natalie built. You know, she built Net-A-Porte into a billion dollar e-commerce business. Um, I was a customer um, and, you know, I know that she knows what she's doing and she assembled an amazing team um, uh, with with Nick Brown and um, and Kelly at Imaginary, who um, I think saw the potential in this business. Um, so they're fantastic. Um, Bullish. Bullish is an amazing um, fund. They've been such great partners. They are one part marketing creative agency and uh-huh. one part investment fund. And so they have only invested in winning consumer companies, Warby Parker, Casper, Birchbox, Peloton Bikes, you know, just Harry's, all the best. Right. And even the guys from Harry's, Jeff and Andy, the co-founders of Harry's, ended up angel investing, as did Neil and Luke, two of the five Casper co-founders. So to have them as partners are just is just incredible. That's fantastic. And 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 were any of these figures sort of mentors for you, kind of helping you through the through the process? Was anyone sort of guiding you? Because this was all very new to you, going out and pitching to VCs. I yeah, mean, I I really didn't have a mentor per se, but I had some people in my life who were friends who just gave me a lot of advice through the process. So one okay. one person, Jean at Sweeten. Oh, Jean Brownhill. Jean, <laughs> lovely. Jean, smart. Sat down, You're looked at fortunate. my pitch deck, gave me feedback, helped me navigate just some of the conversations I was having. If I had a question or whatever, like you know, so people like her, you know, she's been really successful in raising capital for her her business, Sweeten, and Absolutely. she's built an amazing brand. And um, you know, other folks that I know who I think that's been a there. great partnership too yeah. for the future. Sweeten and yeah. Claire. I mean, there's, hey Jean, let's talk. there's a fit there. I'm just saying. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, I was just lucky to have, you know, other founders that I knew that, you know, were there for me for advice as I sort of tried to navigate the process. That, that's really great because, I mean, it, it, it can be very overwhelming. And, I mean, you're, you're, you're all very excited about it now. But I'm sure at, when people weren't coming in, I mean, it's, it's sort of like auditioning in, in acting, right? And you don't yeah. get the part and you don't get the part. And yeah. it's hard to stay motivated and, and positive about it, right? I yeah. Mean, I mean, you got to have a really thick skin. And yes. I think, like, coming from the world where I did do a lot of TV auditioning, 
I understood innately, like when you audition for a show and they've got one role to cast and they're looking at 50 designers, there's a chance that you're not going to get it, right? Yeah. You know, and I'm not right for every opportunity and every opportunity is not right for me. And so I don't take the no as like rejection and feel you know, just dejected by it. I take it as like, this isn't the right opportunity. There's going to be something else. And that's how I had that same attitude when I was fundraising. I never felt downtrodden when an investor said no. Hearing the feedback didn't slow my step at all. And, you know, I think that's the attitude that you need to have. It's hard when you hear a lot of people saying no. And you've particularly when you've invested your whole life and all of your passion and energy into something. And you're really putting yourself out there, right? In front of these people, everything that you've been working on everything that you're hoping for how much were you asking for in the beginning I mean was there yeah so initially um, a lot of times when you hear startups you hear these stories it's like we started in our dorm room or we sold glasses out of our apartment and you're really scrappy about things but a lot of times when these people are starting these companies they're young they're fresh out of school you know I'm a more mature woman I've I've reached a certain (laughs) point I've done a lot of things the right way you know I've worked in a big retail organization so while um, we're certainly still a scrappy company there were just some things that I knew I didn't want to compromise on and I had like a really high level of standards for certain things so I had determined the amount of money that I needed to build the kind of company that I I felt confident in okay. plus a cushion. So initially I thought I was going to raise 2.3 million. And in talking to some other founders and getting advice, they were kind of like, you know, raise as little as you need to to execute your vision. Um, you'll end up giving up less equity, blah, blah, blah. Okay. okay. So I um, I then sort of backpedaled my fundraising ask. I, I did the math and I figured like what What's the minimum I could launch this company with to feel confident? And I took that down to 1.6. You know, ran all the numbers and everything, and it all kind of worked out. It was based on really conservative assumptions. So I went out raising $1.6 million, but then I ended up with an oversubscribed round of $2 million, and here we are. Because people wanted to come in before the round closed. People wanted to come in, and I got a couple of really big checks that came in, and I was happy to take the extra money because that's, you know, that's sort of where I wanted to be in the first place. So I started out um, attempting to raise 1.6 and raise 2 million and raise 2 million dollars and and so what were what were you assuming the first year was going to look like for for Claire I mean what were you what were you looking out and seeing as, yeah I mean the first year was really about learning right because I spent all this time and energy researching creating all these assumptions around what would happen when we launched right but seeing it actually happen and being able to learn from that and react to that and be nimble um, to adapt to what our customers want so like the first year is just it was and, and is because we, we launched just a short time ago but it's really yeah. about when did you officially launch we launched on July 31st July 31st yeah okay. yeah. yeah so um, we're we're brand new brand new and we're learning so much and it's been so fun I'm sure it's been so fun I'm so, sure it's incredible you know and like just letting our customers inform the direction of, of where our company is headed you know obviously we have plans for future growth and things like that and where we want to go from a big picture perspective but it all revolves around customer needs and customer wants and where our customers are located and all of those things and so you know we have a software that we use to manage all of our customer inquiries and I'm actually in the software every day responding to customers oh, that's and great. answering their questions and 
you know, chatting with them on social media and seeing how excited people are about getting their samples. You know, we have, we've innovated around the sampling process. I think right. I talked about um, the customer journey um, and how cumbersome the old way is, but I didn't talk about all the ways we're simplifying it. So we developed these peel and stick color samples. We call them our perfect color swatch. And it's literally like a sticker. It's an eight by eight square that you peel off a piece of film and stick it on the wall, just like a sticker. It's one step, no mess. You can see exactly what the color looks like in your home. You don't have to go back and forth to the store. You don't have to literally watch paint dry. It's so easy. <laughs> so and, and, and online, so you can order you can order samples online. And so, how many crack and peel samples can you can you get online? Well, we are, we're offering three free right now. It's right. sort of like a launch promo. Okay. But they're, after that, they're two dollars okay. each, um, which is less than what color samples cost in a store um, in the old way. And they're easier. They're right. easier to work with. They're faster. It saves the customers so much time. It saves them um, a ton of steps. And um, and we mail them to the customers in this really fun packaging. The samples come in a little folder inside a bright envelope that says, hey, Hugh, because we love paint puns over here at Claire. <laughs> um, yeah. And you know, we, we wanted everything to be an experience. So even just the process of getting your samples is like a little unboxing moment. And people have been sharing their yellow hey, Hugh envelopes on Instagram and oh. you know really just so excited to to um, get their samples in the mail so that's been super fun to see yes we we received some samples in the business of home office so yeah, yeah we were very excited about <laughs> so 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 that's the the early stage is uh, so you're starting to see people ordering samples and kind of sharing their experience you've also got sort of an AI driven program on the site that sort of helps you with with color yeah so we created Claire color genius it's an algorithm based questionnaire that asks you the same types of questions and criteria that an interior designer would assess if they were helping you pick a paint color so like one of the most important criteria is your lighting and people don't understand all all the nuances around lighting and how that impacts color perception Right. But it's literally the most important thing. So we ask you questions like, where's your primary light source coming from? How much natural light do you get? We ask about what room you're painting. What color is the existing furniture in your space? And we take all of this criteria and inputs that the customers give us about their space and we use that to deliver um, a personalized color recommendation that we believe they'll love That's and great. so everybody gets one sort of top choice pick and then there's always two two other options that we think they might like as well and people have been loving the quiz like half the people on our site are completing that quiz um, and so half the people that come to the site are yeah, completing the quiz yeah wow and so I think so. people really love that and then we're hearing from customers about other things they would love to see and so so we're already building onto the quiz experience and we're already working on implementing new changes to make it even better. Um, and I think that's the advantage that we have as a startup is we're a small team, we're really scrappy, we can be right. super nimble, we can get an email from a customer today and like make a change, you know, depending on what it is, like right away. That's fantastic. So so who's sort of running the website for you and kind of managing all of that? Yeah, we have an awesome team. They're based here in New York. Okay. Um, sometimes they're here in the office with us, but usually they're not. Okay. Um, but we're on direct dial, email, Slack, you yeah, know, yeah, phone right. call. And so particularly given that we've just launched, it's really high touch right now. So they're pretty much at our call for anything we need. I'm sure. So were there were there shipping challenges with, with paint? I mean, what, so what are some of the challenges with just sending people paint? Yeah, so there really not, aren't any. Okay. Um, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, it's hazmat, but it's not. You know, right. most typical household paint is water-based and right. our paint is the, you know, very eco-conscious. We're right. zero VOC, Green Guard Gold certified and all of that. But being a water-based paint and not a solvent or oil-based paint, it's not flammable. So you don't have the hazards. It's actually um, more of a challenge to ship perfume or something that has a high alcohol content like that than it is to ship paint. The biggest challenge is that it's heavy, but shipping right. scales, you know, when you're doing a lot 
lot of volume, your shipping costs go down, and we were really aggressive with our negotiations with uh, okay. on our shipping rate. So we're we're doing all right there. So and do we have a primary shipper that we negotiated with, or yeah? So we ship everything. Our paint ships UPS, and right now our samples ship with USPS. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So that yeah. so that's easy for people to use, and yeah, and and. Do people uh, have a return policy if they made a mistake, or like how does that work? For yeah, you? so we have what's called the Claire Promise, which is essentially a promise to our customers that if you're not happy for any reason, contact us and we'll make it right. Um, we really want to make sure our customers have an amazing experience, and so um, you know if they experience any issue at all, we're here for them. That's fantastic. And so when people order the paint, you send a whole kit with it in the beginning, right? Yeah, well, the kit is optional. It's, okay. You have to purchase it, so okay. it doesn't come free with the paint. But um, we do make it really easy to pair all of the tools that you need to paint with. That was another pain point that I realized in the old customer journey is even once you've gone through the process of picking your color, you go to the store, you've got to wait in line to get your paint mix. And then you've got to go to this tool aisle, which is just as confusing as the color aisle. Right. Because there's a million different options for paintbrushes, roller covers, kits. Often what they do is they try to sell you, like if you go to the big box stores, they'll say, oh, just buy this $12.99 kit. It's got everything you need to paint. And as a customer, you're like, oh, great. Okay, cool. I'll buy that. But what you don't, what they're not telling you is that those kits have often the lowest quality materials. Usually people are buying a more premium paint these days. And I liken the analogy to putting cheap gas in your fancy car, right? right. You're not going to get the same performance mm -hmm. if you use um, low quality tools with your premium paint. So, and so along the, the way, what, what's been the biggest, the biggest challenge for you in, in getting it going? Um, someone asked me this, this the other day. I don't think I've encountered a ton no of hurdles. Not, not that there's no <laughs> challenges. I mean, no. but nothing that's insurmountable, right? right? Like nothing there's not a solve for. Right. I think the biggest challenge for us is just going to be how do we cut through when you have these dominant players that have been doing this for a hundred years and 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 have way more marketing spend and right. you know and just um, we're just so focused on our customer right now. So I think as long as we deliver on an amazing customer experience, I think we'll do okay. Another person that I've always admired so much is Jeff Bezos. Ah, okay. And his maniacal Amazon's focus. Yeah, yeah, Amazon founder Jeff Bezos, he's been maniacally focused on delivering on customer experience. And right. I think that's why Amazon is, is dominating. Yeah. Um, and you know, with the paint category specifically, that was also something that I saw that was lacking. Paint customers aren't really speaking directly to their end users because their customer is the big box retailers, the independent hardware stores and the dealers. Right. They're not really speaking directly to the person who's buying the paint who just wants to paint their bedroom, right? And so yeah. there is a huge disconnect there um, and you know, with us, we have an advantage because we own our direct line to the customer, rather, and um, you know, we can get that immediate feedback from them. We can and, and just be way more nimble to serve them. You know, we don't exist without customers. Sure. <laughs> well, so how much time did you anticipate having on your own in this in this space before some of the big players sort of wake up and say oh you know i see this claire brand has come along and they're doing e-commerce and they've got 55 colors that they've sort of brilliantly edited how much time were you thinking you you had to really get this going before you had to worry about them 
honestly, I wasn't in your grill. I wasn't really worried about anybody getting in my grill. I okay. know that competition is inevitable. Right. So I was just have been solely focused on building the strongest brand that I can and building up defensibility that way. Like okay. you build a brand that customers love, um, and um, you do all the things that are right by them. And also, I think building elements of virality into your brand so mm-hmm. that people will share your story for you. Right. Um, you know, that's just the best that we can do. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I didn't want to come out the gate trying to worry about competing with other other companies. Okay. I wanted to come out of the gate with a real point of differentiation mm-hmm. and a focus on... And stick to um, that. Yeah, yeah, just to focus on how we're doing things and, and doing everything in a, in a fresh, new, and different way. So, and, and because you have such a strong PR background, you had a really strong launch, right? So suddenly Claire was everywhere, yeah. right? It was in architectural digest and El Decor, and you were on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. I mean, and you were everywhere, and it was it was fantastic and and very well done. So congratulations on on that. How do you keep that kind of momentum going in terms of your your marketing spend? In terms of of what you do to to build that that brand? How do you how do you build on all of that energy? There's all these great stories out there right now about yeah. the Warby Parker of paint and yeah, yeah and it's and yeah. it's incredibly exciting. And, and how do you keep that momentum going? Yeah, I mean, I think we're going to continue pounding the PR machine. Like, we're going to continue working that channel. I think, you know, as someone who comes from a PR background, I understand how important um, organic growth is for a business, particularly a consumer business. I think with direct-to-consumer companies, we're seeing a lot of these companies are so heavily reliant on paid acquisition to to, to get yes. customers. Yes. Um, and I think the more that you can optimize for organic growth, the stronger you'll you'll be. Um, in the end and so you know we're investing a lot in PR and content and you know we're just getting started we have a small team still we had so much to do just to make our launch date that a lot a lot of things didn't get done right and so we we have a lot in the pipeline um, content wise and a lot of stories that will have some PR legs and um, you know and then of course all the other sort of traditional digital marketing channels are part of our mix as well do you think that the as a as a designer and and as an entrepreneur, do you think that the design world, the interior design world, and and specifically I'm thinking of sort of the high-end, you know, D&D, New York Design Center type companies, do you think they can make a model like this work where, where people can go online and get quotes as we were talking about earlier or, or, or get more information from that company without having to interact with a with a person but just be able to get the information that they need and, and go is that is that really going to be viable for for a lot of these companies in the high-end design world do you think I mean I do think that there's a big opportunity for a lot of the companies in the high-end design world to change their models to suit the way that a younger generation of designers run their businesses Um, because you know as the old guard starts to retire and whatnot it's going to be these young designers who grew up in a totally different generation right um, than you know the David Easton's of the world and the sure. Charlotte Mosses and whatever. And, and I think like all of my peers in the design industry love online self-service. We don't, we, we need to do things quickly. We need to be 
you know, respond to our clients really quickly. So like, you know, we were talking about getting quotes. Like I love when I can just go online and get my own quote in five seconds versus having to email a rep and wait for a response and, you know, slow up my process. So I think just having more self-service is great. I think the big design epicenters like New York City and LA will always need physical showrooms. But I think the more, I mean, you just do it. It's impressive. You take your clients there. You get inspired there. You need to go and pull samples right away because you don't have two days for UPS or whatever. Absolutely. Like you, sure. you, there's always going to be. I think in the big, big markets. Right. I think it's useful, but um, I think there's a better opportunity to cater to um, the way that designers are running their businesses, which we're all paperless now. No one wants to have you know 12 inch thick catalogs. Like you know, we can see all the stuff on your website. Like just making right. making all of that. Um, much more efficient Mm -hmm. Um, and you know it'd be nice if lead times could get shorter (laughs) if someone could figure that out I think I think they could probably do you know win win a big chunk of uh, of uh, extra business but like paint I think a lot of the home industry and the furniture business and the textile industry hasn't quite moved as fast as how the consumer landscape has shifted right Um, and I think you know, maybe getting some new minds and fresh thinking and new ways of doing things is, is yeah. needed. Yeah. And and Claire is a consumer facing brand, right? So we're going after the whole world. Well, not right? necessarily. We are not just a consumer facing brand. Okay. I mean, at the end of the day, our goal is to become a major player. Um, I designed a color palette that I knew designers would love too. Mm-hmm. I want them using our products also. Right. We are still in our very earliest stages of infancy. We are a newborn startup. Right. <laughs> and so we Just can't... Just a couple of weeks old. <laughs> we can't do it all on day one, but literally within hours of our press launch, we were getting emails from designers being like, do you have a trade program? Do you have a fan deck? Can we use, you know, how can we specify your products? And so... Fantastic. You know, okay. we're, we're not fully set up and ready to rock right. with that just right. yet but okay. we're now that we're seeing the demand we're working faster to make all of that happen so that was a nice surprise that the design community sort of reached out right away and said we'd, we'd love yeah to. I mean I don't okay. even know if it was a surprise because we expected like I knew our colors were awesome and beautiful right. and I knew that <laughs> right. um, I knew that you know that yes. design community would appreciate the curation right what I was focused on first was solving the pain points for the customers who have the biggest pain points right designers know exactly what they need sure and what they're looking for and what finish they want to specify and how to narrow down the choices the average homeowner really struggles. It's a hassle. They need the help. They need the guidance. So um, initially, we were focusing on that customer first, serving Mm -hmm. the customer who had the biggest pain points. Um, But, you know, it's super important to me that the A&D community supports our business as well and uses our products. And I think um, there's always room for new players. And, um, you know, I think one of the great things about our paint is that it is premium paint. I design paint that a pro would want to use, right? Like I would hear feedback on job sites from contractors when I would ask them to use certain paint brands, right? Right. And they'd be like, this is really difficult paint to, to work with. Like I'd hear the feedback mm-hmm, about mm-hmm. the products, right? So they'd tell you which ones were, were difficult to use. They'd tell, exactly. Okay. So I would hear the feedback on which right. paints were difficult to use and which paints they loved to use. And so I knew that like the formulation was really important. Um, pros work differently than a homeowner who's doing it themselves. They they focus on efficiency. They need products that they can apply really fast. They need right. tools and things that they're, they're all about productivity because they need to fi- finish the job faster so they can move on to the next one. And so 
all of that was taken into consideration when building this brand. Um, and did you do a lot of testing with, with Claire? Were there were there people in the field who were using it before? Absolutely. Yeah. We got a lot of feedback and, you know, immediately, like, people say, like, this is really great paint, like, really good quality paint. And I would ask, you know, before they'd use it, I'd be like, oh, what's your favorite brand? You know, what brand do you love to work with the most, right? right. And, and obviously, a lot of contractors and pros, they're bound to whatever the client wants, right? Mm -hmm. So they're not it's not always their choice of what product they're using. Right. Um, so they've used it all and have opinions about what paint they like and what they don't like. And, um, you know, I would hear folks say that, like, this is better than fill in the blank that mm -hmm. I was using before. So, um, you know, I'm so confident in our product. And I know that, like, once we get into the hands of the pros, once designers really start using our product in their projects, um, I think the, 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 the color curation is fantastic. We're making it easier for their clients, you know, by, you know, even just the sampling, offering the peel and stick swatches. You know, when you're sure. working with homeowners, they, um, they have a higher consideration than when you're working on a commercial project, right? Homeowners will sit with swatches for a while before they decide, right? They're like, they, they take a little bit more time to, to make a choice, even if they have a designer nudging them towards it towards an option and so we just we make sampling simple um you know we're working on developing tools that make um showing colors to your client to their clients easier and um you know so our goal is really to become a major player and 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 so what does that mean so how big do you see yourself getting in the future nicole what do you, i mean what do you think? like i said i hope that i hope that we're able to really cut through make a real dent in the market okay. um and become a dominant player it's essentially a duopoly there are two companies that own every paint brand you've ever heard of or that most consumers have ever heard of. Right. Right? Okay. And then when you look at the the sub players underneath those those two, mm -hmm. they're still five hundred billion dollar companies, right? right? With with small slices of the market share. So I think there is a big opportunity for Claire to really cut through and become a major player because I don't believe that the existing brands are serving the needs of today's customer and we are. Okay. And that's our opportunity. And do you want to stay a standalone company? Do you want to stay independent? Or if Benjamin Moore or Valspar calls up and says, my God, this is a good idea. We want to, we want to buy you out. What do you say? Well, right now, like I said, we are a <laughs> newborn company. Yes. We launched yes. days ago. Yes. And so I'm not thinking that far ahead to who might acquire us someday or if that's right. the road that we even want to go. Obviously, being a venture-backed company, the two logical paths to give your investors the liquidity that they are looking for is either acquisition or IPO. So it's not that I haven't thought about it, but sure. right now I'm so focused on building this brand into an adult Absolutely. and not a baby. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, yeah. We've, I've got know. a lot of nurturing to do. There, and, there is a lot of work to do. Yeah. Um, was there one thing that you that you wished you had known when you got started with launching this brand that you that you sort of have learned along the way and you go oh god I wish I knew this in the beginning was, was there one thing that really sort of stands out I mean you learned so much going through the going through the process yeah honestly I don't know if there's anything I would have done differently right there's a lot of little things that maybe I wish I would have known in the beginning but yeah. every part of the journey and getting here was a learning for me it was like a crash course in business school a crash course in the VC landscape a crash course in you know paint chemistry a crash course like every yeah. Yes, and you did it all yourself. Yeah. I mean, you didn't have 
advisors or investment bankers yeah or, right I mean you know I just learned so much along the way that I don't really have any regrets or wish that I could have right. done something in a different way I think everything happened in in its sort of divine path and 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 for a purpose and um, and that's why we're here today so and the next big steps for you as far as really as you say growing this infant company and, yeah. and getting it bigger so is it is it hiring more more staff is it what what are the next big things you have to work yeah, on yeah obviously like building a team is important so um we're hiring always okay. um and so you can't do more without the human capital right. and the human resources and so um, and what are you hiring for? What do you really need? What, yeah, so what, what are some of the next people that are coming on board? Right now, we're hiring for a head of customer experience. Feel free to hit me up on LinkedIn if you're a fit. Customer experience, <laughs> all right. Um, we're also hiring for um, a head of business operations. And okay. so that's a sort of a hybrid role that we'll wear many hats from finance to um, helping with partnerships. And some of the other roles I can't really divulge because okay. they, they might reveal what some of our future plans are. Got it. Okay. But um, we are right. a growing team um, and we want to test new channels, create new partnerships, right. find, you know, new ways to, to tell people about Claire and um, and share the word. And so there's a lot of interesting and exciting things in the pipeline and I can't wait to share with everybody soon. Well, that that is very exciting, as is, as is this whole process. So uh, huge congratulations to you on the launch of, of Claire and thrilled to be here in your office here at the Claire HQ a color wall in the in the background uh, with all your with all your colors did you name all these colors yourself yes, yes. so we flat we, iron and good jeans with my team summer friday this naming colors was a team effort and it yes. was such a fun part of the process i bet it was i felt like when you hear paint color names from other brands they kind of sound boring when you have 3000 colors it's hard to come up with fresh names right so we wanted to come up with names that you could really connect with and that resonate so we've got a couple names inspired by Beyonce like Blue Ivy and Lemonade <laughs> um, I'm from Detroit so I named a color Motor, say, Motor City, City after I, my beloved hometown I knew that was a, um, you know yeah, yeah avocado toast is our our fun green um, rosé season and I think like just all of those little elements of the brand from the naming to the product to the packaging right. we wanted it to feel fresh and feel different and be something that people could connect with like folks are on instagram making dr jokes about drinking rosé and with our paint and you know it's just it's really fun and it makes yeah. the shopping experience more fun right like so absolutely um, we had a ball naming colors i'll bet you did and they're, and they're very fun seize the gray love it um, no, it's, it's, it's all very, very exciting. C congratulations again. Uh, my guest has been Nicole Gibbons, founder and CEO of Claire. Thank you again for joining us. The show is Business of Home, and I'm Dennis Scully. If you like what you hear, please feel free to subscribe, tell a friend about the show, and most of all, leave us a review on iTunes. Thank you again to our sponsor and our producers. You can find us at businessofhome.com. We're on Facebook or Instagram. We'll see you next week.